This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Green Meadow by H.P. Lovecraft and Winifred Virginia Jackson. It's read by Wayne June. It runs 17 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Weird Audiobooks presents The Green Meadow by H.P. Lovecraft with Winifred Virginia Jackson. Read by Wayne June. Introductory Note The following very singular narrative, or record of impressions, was discovered under circumstances so extraordinary that they deserve careful description. On the evening of Wednesday, August 27, 1913, at about 8.30 o'clock, the population of the small seaside village of Potawatomi, Maine, USA, was aroused by a thunderous report accompanied by a blinding flash, and persons near the shore beheld a mammoth ball of fire dart from the heavens into the sea but a short distance out, sending up a prodigious column of water. The following Sunday a fishing party composed of John Richmond, Peter B. Carr, and Simon Canfield caught in their trawl and dragged ashore a mass of metallic rock weighing 360 pounds and looking, as Mr. Canfield said, like a piece of slag. Most of the inhabitants agreed that this heavy body was none other than the fireball which had fallen from the sky four days before, and Dr. Richard M. Jones, the local scientific authority, allowed that it must be an aerolite or meteoric stone. In chipping off specimens to send to an expert Boston analyst, Dr. Jones discovered embedded in the semi-metallic mass the strange book containing the ensuing tale, which is still in his possession. In form, the discovery resembles an ordinary notebook, about five by three inches in size, and containing thirty leaves. In material, however, it presents marked peculiarities. The covers are apparently of some dark, stony substance unknown to geologists, and unbreakable by any mechanical means. No chemical reagent seems to act upon them. The leaves are much the same, save that they are lighter in color and so infinitely thin as to be quite flexible. The whole is bound by some process not very clear to those who have observed it, a process involving the adhesion of the leaf substance to the cover substance. These substances cannot now be separated, nor can the leaves be torn by any amount of force. The writing is Greek of the purest classical quality, and several students of paleography declare that the characters are in a cursive hand used about the second century B.C. There is little in the text to determine the date. The mechanical mode of writing cannot be deduced beyond the fact that it must have resembled that of the modern slate and slate pencil. During the course of analytical efforts made by the late Professor Chambers of Harvard, Several pages, mostly at the conclusion of the narrative, were blurred to the point of utter effacement before being read, a circumstance forming a well-nigh irreparable loss. 
What remains of the contents was done into modern Greek letters by the paleographer Rutherford and in this form submitted to the translators. Professor Mayfield of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who examined the samples of the strange stone, declares it a true meteorite. An opinion in which Dr. von Winterfeld of Heidelberg, interned in 1918 as a dangerous enemy alien, does not concur. Professor Bradley of Columbia College adopts a less dogmatic ground, pointing out that certain utterly unknown ingredients are present in large quantities, and warning that no classification is as yet possible. The presence, nature, and message of the strange book form so momentous a problem that no explanation can even be attempted. The text, as far as preserved, is rendered here as literally as our language permits, in the hope that some reader may eventually hit upon an interpretation and solve one of the greatest scientific mysteries of recent years. E.N.B. L.T. Jr. The Story It was a narrow place, and I was alone. On one side, beyond a margin of vivid, waving green, was the sea, blue, bright, and billowy, and sending up vaporous exhalations which intoxicated me. So profuse indeed were these exhalations that they gave me an odd impression of a coalescence of sea and sky, for the heavens were likewise bright and blue. On the other side was the forest, ancient almost as the sea itself, and stretching infinitely inland. It was very dark, for the trees were grotesquely huge and luxuriant, and incredibly numerous. Their giant trunks were of a horrible green, which blended weirdly with the narrow green tract whereon I stood. At some distance away, on either side of me, the strange forest extended down to the water's edge, obliterating the shoreline and completely hemming in the narrow tract. Some of the trees I observed stood in the water itself, as though impatient of any barrier to their progress. I saw no living thing, nor a sign that any living thing save myself had ever existed. The sea and the sky and the wood encircled me and reached off into regions beyond my imagination. Nor was there any sound save of the wind-tossed wood and of the sea. As I stood in this silent place, I suddenly commenced to tremble. For though I knew not how I came there and could scarce remember what my name and rank had been, I felt that I should go mad if I could understand what lurked about me. I recalled things I had learned, things I had dreamed, things I had imagined and yearned for in some other distant life. I thought of long nights when I had gazed up at the stars of heaven and cursed the gods that my free soul could not traverse the vast abysses which were inaccessible to my body. I conjured up ancient blasphemies and terrible delvings into the papyri of Democritus, and as memories appeared I shuddered in deeper fear, for I knew that I was alone, horribly alone, alone yet close to sentient impulses of vast, vague kind, which I prayed never to comprehend, 
nor encounter. In the voice of the swaying green branches, I fancied I could detect a kind of malignant hatred and demoniac triumph. Sometimes they struck me as being in horrible colloquy with ghastly and unthinkable things which the scaly green bodies of the trees half hid, hid from sight, but not from consciousness. The most oppressive of my sensations was a sinister feeling of alienage. Though I saw about me objects which I could name, trees, grass, sea, and sky, I felt that their relation to me was not the same as that of the trees, grass, sea, and sky I knew in another and dimly remembered life. The nature of the difference I could not tell, yet I shook in stark fright as it impressed itself upon me. And then, in a spot where I had before discerned nothing but the misty sea, I beheld the green meadow, separated from me by a vast expanse of blue, rippling water with sun-tipped wavelets, yet strangely near. Often I would peep fearfully over my right shoulder at the trees, but I preferred to look at the green meadow, which affected me oddly. It was while my eyes were fixed upon this singular tract that I first felt the ground in motion beneath me, beginning with a kind of throbbing agitation which held a fiendish suggestion of conscious action. The bit of bank on which I stood detached itself from the grassy shore and commenced to float away, borne slowly onward as if by some current of resistless force. I did not move, astonished and startled as I was by the unprecedented phenomenon, but stood rigidly still until a wide lane of water yawned betwixt me and the land of trees. And I sat down in a sort of daze and again looked at the sun-tipped water and the green meadow. Behind me the trees and the things they may have been hiding seemed to radiate infinite menace. This I knew without turning to view them, for as I grew more used to the scene, I became less and less dependent upon the five senses that once had been my sole reliance. I knew the green scaly forest hated me. Yet now I was safe from it, for my bit of bank had drifted far from the shore. But though one peril was past, another loomed up before me. Pieces of earth were constantly crumbling from the floating isle which held me, so that death could not be far distant in any event. Yet even then I seemed to sense that death would be death to me no more. For I turned again to watch the green meadow, imbued with a curious feeling of security, in strange contrast to my general horror. Then it was that I heard, at a distance immeasurable, the sound of falling water, not that of any trivial cascade such as I had known, but that which might be heard in the far Scythian lands if all the Mediterranean were poured down an unfathomable abyss. It was toward this sound that my shrinking island was drifting. Yet I was content. Far in the rear were happening weird and terrible things, things which I turned to view, yet shivered to behold. For in the sky dark, vaporous forms hovered fantastically, brooding over trees and seeming to answer the challenge of the waving green branches. 
Then a thick mist arose from the sea to join the sky forms, and the shore was erased from my sight, though the sun, what sun I knew not, shone brightly on the water around me. The land I had left seemed involved in a demoniac tempest where clashed the will of the hellish trees and what they hid with that of the sky and the sea. And when the mist vanished, I saw only the blue sky and the blue sea, for the land and the trees were no more. It was at this point that my attention was arrested by the singing in the green meadow. Hitherto, as I have said, I had encountered no sign of human life, but now there arose to my ears a dull chant whose origin and nature were apparently unmistakable. While the words were utterly undistinguishable, the chant awakened in me a peculiar train of associations, and I was reminded of some vaguely disquieting lines I had once translated out of an Egyptian book, which in turn were taken from a papyrus of ancient Maroe. Through my brain ran lines that I fear to repeat, lines telling of very antique things and forms of life in the days when our earth was exceeding young, of things which thought and moved and were alive, yet which gods and men would not consider alive. It was a strange book. As I listened, I became gradually conscious of a circumstance which had before puzzled me only subconsciously. At no time had my sight distinguished any definite objects in the green meadow, an impression of vivid homogeneous verdure being the sum total of my perception. Now, however, I saw the current would cause my island to pass the shore at but a little distance so that I might learn more of the land and of the singing thereon. My curiosity to behold the singers had mounted high, though it was mingled with apprehension. Bits of sod continued to break away from the tiny tract which carried me, but I heeded not their loss, for I felt that I was not to die with the body, or appearance of a body, which I seemed to possess, that everything about me, even life and death, was illusory, that I had overleaped the bounds of mortality and corporeal entity, becoming a free, detached thing, impressed me as almost certain. Of my location I knew nothing, save that I felt I could not be on the earth planet once so familiar to me. My sensations, apart from a kind of haunting terror, were those of a traveler just embarked upon an unending voyage of discovery. For a moment I thought of the lands and persons I had left behind, and of strange ways whereby I might some day tell them of my adventurings, even though I might never return. I had now floated very near the green meadow, so that the voices were clear and distinct, but though I knew many languages I could not quite interpret the words of the chanting. Familiar they indeed were, as I had suddenly felt when at a greater distance, but beyond a sensation of vague and awesome remembrance I could make nothing of them. A most extraordinary quality in the voices, a quality which I cannot describe at once frightened and fascinated me. My eyes could now discern several things amidst the omnipresent verdure. Rocks covered with bright green moss, shrubs of considerable height, and less definable shapes of great magnitude, which seemed to move or vibrate amidst the shrubbery in a peculiar way. 
The chanting, whose authors I was so anxious to glimpse, seemed loudest at points where these shapes were most numerous and most vigorously in motion. And then, as my island drifted closer and the sound of the distant waterfall grew louder, I saw clearly the source of the chanting and in one horrible instant remembered everything of such things. I cannot, dare not tell, for therein was revealed the hideous solution of all which had puzzled me, and that solution would drive you mad, even as it almost drove me. I knew now the change through which I had passed, and through which certain others who once were men had passed. And I knew the endless cycle of the future which none like me may escape. I shall live forever, be conscious forever, though my soul cries out to the gods for the boon of death and oblivion. All is before me. Beyond the deafening torrent lies the land of Stethelos, where young men are infinitely old. The green meadow. I will send a message across the horrible, immeasurable abyss. At this point, the text becomes illegible. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. I'm Brian. And I'm Wayne. And you just narrated this story for us, The Green Meadow by H.P. Lovecraft with Winifred Virginia Jackson. This is the second uh, and final collaboration between the two. Um, the first being The Crawling Chaos, which uh, you narrated like six years ago. And we did a show on six years ago on this podcast. Um, I went back and listened to uh, that I, I have strong memories of it anyways, because um, I think it's a really cool story. I like this story, too. Um, I don't think it's quite as um, dynamic as that one is. That one has a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it also has uh, explicit uh, mention of uh, a play gear, and I think there's um, uh, some morphine or some sort of drugs. Um, this one uh, has a meteorite, and... Uh, a lot of dead, uh, sorry, a lot of professors, <laughs> two <laughs> translators, and an ending which a lot of people don't like. Um, but I, I actually think the ending might be a little better than they think. What'd you guys think of this story? Uh, it's one that baffled me uh, when I first read it many years ago. Um, it wasn't readily available at first, being one of his revisions. Mm hmm. And in the UK, um, in the 80s, they reissued pretty much all the Lovecraft canon in three big paper packs. Right. But the publisher never actually did an attendant volume of all the revision work. <laughs> and so I had to wait and hunt down some old paperback copies. And I got, it was split, there's an Arkham House book, The Horror in the Museum. In the UK, it was split into two volumes. And I had the first one, The Horror of the Museum, and the second volume that had uh, the Green Meadow in. It took me years to track down. And unfortunately, it seemed to be, to my eyes, that then it was filled with the lesser stories of his revisions, including like this, which at the time I thought, well, this is just like a fragment, really. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like an extended commonplace book entry. And mm -hmm. other than the beginning being obviously kind of uh, strongly echoed in the uh, ending of The Shadow Out of Time, mm -hmm. I kind of 
this is rubbish. He doesn't mention the Necronomicon once. Yeah. There isn't the, there isn't the shop, the mythos shopping list. Nothing happens. Bah, you know. Yeah, the, written, books are, the books mentioned are very tantalizing, but never, they're never given a title, right? Well, that's it. And you know, at the time when I, I was very much about the mytho shopping list, unfortunately. Yeah. So it's a, but it's one of the, I, when, I've, when I've come back to it and you sort of take away kind of the artificial sort of checklist, you measure it against. Mm-hmm. It's one of those, it's like, um, there's a few of the kind of long pieces he wrote solo, like what's often collected as the prose poems, like uh, memory. Mm-hmm. And what the moon brings, and I love the one. The I kind of brings. yeah, I really enjoy these sort of actually long, kind of you know prose poems he wrote, and I kind of now see the Green Meadow as very much being uh, a companion piece to those. I uh, for some reason I I I thought I had heard the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast do a show on this, and I was blaming my new phone search search i don't know browser or whatever i said stupid thing or maybe they changed their website and i i got down to my computer and you know did a power search nope still not coming up and then i went through every blog entry on their blog they they just didn't cover this story they completely ignored it and uh it's kind of strange and i think part of the reason that people don't cover this story is because they they don't know what to make of it. It, it. it does have some prose poem aspects, and and some people, um, like the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast guys, they don't, they didn't cover the poems, right? I mean, they m- might have done a couple specials or you know a comedy episode with a couple of poems, but this is, I think, probably the most neglected Lovecraft story that Lovecraft mostly wrote, and. Um, there is no audiobook version. The only audiobook version that exists, as far as I can find in the entire universe, is the one you just recorded for us. Whoa. As, it sh- as it should be, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. doesn't need to have a better, uh, you know, another version because th- we've got the best one right here. It's, it's, there you uh, have it. Really yeah, terrific, the, 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 you know, the actually. way this, this story struck me was, uh, and maybe you know about this, I, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, up to speed uh, on exactly when he wrote what. I think he wrote this in mm, fairly early on, didn't he? 18 uh, or 19. Eight, eight, 19, 18 or 1919. Okay. Um, cuz it, it seems to me it, uh, this is like one of his uh, his early efforts. It's uh, very derivative or at least reminds me uh, a lot of uh uh, of Poe, particularly uh, the House of Usher, mm-hmm. with with the descriptions of the uh, the tarn and the house and the road uh, that leads there, and um, I was I was wondering uh, when he does when he when he did things like uh, in conjunction with other people, uh, did he do that? Was that a gig? Did he do that for money, or was that? In this case, I don't. I don't think so. This was published in an amateur magazine in 1927, which means nobody got paid. Um, right. Okay. And yeah. Because it it seemed to me uh, like Jim was saying uh, it's got nothing to do with the with the with the mythos. It's it's, it's not a typical formulaic uh, Lovecraft. So I found it kind of disappointing in that way. Uh, but it. It's loosely uh, connected, I think, to his uh, his main uh, theme of the uh, uh, the 
frighteningly uncaring universe. It's, it mm. reminds me of, um, uh, the willows by Algernon Blackwood. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the Wendigo, mm -hmm. um, the damned thing by, uh, Bierce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's got that, that whole, uh, uh, nature as a, a threat type of one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I I I love the gauntlet that's thrown down in this uh, opening. Right? How's it go? It goes like this: the text, as far as preserved, is here rendered as literally as our language permits. That's I guess English, right? In the hopes that some reader may eventually hit upon an interpretation. And solve one of the greatest scientific mysteries of recent <laughs> years. I love that uh, this is like a hoax thing. They say, okay, um, Virginia, she had this dream. Miss <laughs> Winifred Virginia Jackson had this dream. Uh, I don't know what it means, but I really like it. I'm going to write it down, give it a frame, and uh, let other people figure out what it means, right? And... Uh, I mean, I, I think if you just say, you know, it has no deeper meaning other than a series of images, I think uh, you're making a mistake. But I also think if you read too far past the fact that, yeah, it's just a dream, you're also making a mistake. But I, I think the um, the power of, of, like, I physically got out a pencil and started drawing what is described by the narrator. On the left, on the right, you know, it says on one side there was this, and then this was happening, and then these did that, and the colors, and putting it all together. And, like, it's so clear that life is the enemy. Mm -hmm. Right? So the sea and the sky are in a war with life. And life hates him, <laughs> whoever him is, right? <laughs> um, he breaks off from life and floats away. Um, this is almost exactly what happened in um, in the other story, in The Crawling Chaos. Um, the, there's this peninsula and this shore is being eaten by the, um, by the sea. And there's this tempest. And then there's these uh, things of the air, forms of the air that come down and join the battle. So the, the forms of the uh, air that are not alive in, in this story that are non alive join with the sea and the forms of the air that are alive in some sense join with the very much alive trees that also conspire with something within the forest. Right. And so it's a war of like the living against or the living against the non living. And then this guy, he breaks away, <laughs> goes off a cataract and ends up in the dreamlands apparently. I guess that's my interpretation of what's going on. <laughs> um, uh, Brian, what did you think of this? Is this the first time you read it? I don't remember reading it. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a lifelong Lovecraft reader, and I've done some some scholarship on him. But I, I have to say that the uh, the fantasies don't don't really do much for me. Um, generally speaking, I prefer the straight up horror pieces. Um, so I was surprised that how much I really appreciated and enjoyed this for all all kinds of reasons. Uh, I love the uh, the big, thick, massive frame uh, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, I really liked, uh, especially the. Uh, did you guys catch the uh, World War One reference in there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we yep. have a German interned as an enemy alien. 
one of the many loathsome policies of the Wilson administration. Um, that was interesting. You know, I mean, one thing I would love to do sometime is just to write about uh, Lovecraft in World War One, because he does this in more than a few stories. Um, I love the tonal shift from the frame to the story. That was really impressive. Uh, I mean, if you if you write something like this, it's really easy to slide into similar word choice, uh, sentence structure, and emotions between the multiple levels of the story. But these are clearly distinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's really neat. And then I love the the quick catastrophe of the ending. That's so frustrating. Uh, thanks to Harvard, um, right? Because it's the Harvard guy who blows it by mess, you know, messing up the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we get this sudden oh. Uh, I know what's happening. I let's see. In one horrible instant, remembered everything. But this is Lovecraft of such things I cannot dare not tell. For therein was revealed a hideous solution of all which had puzzled me, and that solution would drive you mad, even as it almost drove me. And then things start to fall apart. I knew what happened. I understood. I knew I shall live forever, be conscious forever. Blah, and then it just falls apart. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I really I admire this. It reminds me of uh, a few things. It reminds me of um, Kafka's fragments. Uh, which are enormously powerful. Uh, they're not complete stories, and that's partly because of the publication history. Um, but the the Kafka short little bits are uh, are nightmarishly fierce. And it also reminds me of uh, Poe's um, strange novel. Uh, you know how mm. uh, so much of uh, Arthur Gordon Pym is about these mm. uh, landscapes that look familiar, gradually yeah. get deranged, and then have some threat to them. Um, uh, just a few quick thoughts. A few quick thoughts. Mm. I like that. I want to. I want to talk about the professors. There's four of them mentioned. Um, this. Uh, this is from a period where I don't think he'd invented the town. Uh, I mean, w- w- the town in here is a, not a real town. Potawankit sounds real, right? Right. Not yeah. a real town, as far as I can tell. Um, so, uh, yet another Lovecraft country uh, village. The local. Um, uh, scientist is in actually in Boston, right? Which is pretty far away. The local scientific authority, Doctor oh. Doctor Richard M. Jones, who's in Boston, um, and he's the one who discovers the book. Then there, the analyst uh, for the text is the quote late Professor Chambers of Harvard. Now he's the one who screws up somehow. He effaces the final. Uh, pages in this 30-page text. And i got to tell you, the story we've read is not 30 pages unless it's very uh, small. Uh, it's a small book, but I think he deleted quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And how did he manage to do it since no known substance can harm the, you know, in indestructible pages which are made out of stone <laughs> that's a good that's a good question i had that that didn't strike me. I hadn't well, thought of that. Well, it's i think very important kind of that he's just this cast off line, the late Professor Chambers of Harvard Harvard. Ah, okay. I think that he found out um what happened mm. and he followed the path and in either uh you know, I gotta destroy this so other people don't follow it or something else. It, it, that's why the text is cut off. What I love about this story is I didn't realize um, how good it is is actually not being a fragment at the end. When what does he say? The final lines we have are um, all is before me, and we get a whole bunch of dot dot dots, right? So it's like he's he's got the pencil in hand, and he's 
you know, the thing's crawling in the window, just crawling up the side of the building. He's, they're at the door. He's got to jump out the window, right? We've got that sort of scene, but he says, all is before me. Beyond the deafening torrent lies the land of Stethelos. This is the, this is the major connection to the Dreamlands. Apparently, this is in the quest for Irinon, Um mentioned also, um, which is near Sarnath, right? So it's a Dreamland story in a certain sense. And then, where young men are infinitely old, the green dot 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 the green meadow dot dot dot. I will send a message across the horrible, immeasurable abyss, dot, dot, dot. At this point, the text becomes illegible. That, I mean, one of the stupid, stupidest things I thought at the beginning of the story is that you've got a, you've got a meteorite and the inside it is a book? <laughs> I mean, how does yeah, right. that work? <laughs> right? Yep. That's ridiculous. Yep. But then, um, I think the story works incredibly well because that is the message, Right. The book is the message, and you say, "Well, yeah, that's that's not so, that's not so uh, interesting, Jesse." And then I say, "Well, wait a second. Actually, he's he has fixed up this dream to actually make a lot of sense, in, in at least some respects." So um, one of the names dropped again, not a real uh, a real scholar instead of a fake scholar, right? Is um, Democritus? Yeah, I did a little bit of research on uh, on. Uh Demi, as I call him. Yep. Uh, uh, and uh, he, there was some pretty cool stuff in there. I'm trying to find my notes, but uh, basically, um, he had this uh, he had this uh, theory of um, spirits, or uh, he called them uh, idola, e i d o l a, which mm-hmm. uh, idola, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it, it was kind of a, a floating around the, in the air a spirit mm-hmm. that 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 people the people would uh, would absorb. You'd you'd actually absorb them through your pores, and they <laughs> they would uh, affect the way uh, affect the way you uh, you you act and. Uh, if uh, if a person was particularly uh, uh, cruel or envious or evil, uh, he 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 would actually affect the person that he had ill intent towards mm. by uh, influencing his his idolon. Mm. Uh, creepy stuff. Uh, I'm going to try and find if I can my notes because they uh, did a. Uh, there's one one paragraph in this article I read that, that, that was really creepy, and it it kind of it kind of made the story more creepy to me. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, objections I had to it in in the <coughs> beginning is like the same thing as with the, the Wendigo uh, or with uh, the Willows, the the theme of it being. Oh, those scary trees, kids! Watch out! You know, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't doesn't do it for me, you know. But but when you put it all together, uh, especially with his his reference to uh, to democ democritus, what did he call it? The uh, uh, the papyri of mm-hmm. democritus or yep. something. I think that's where and I found certain, the, and certain other uh, papyri uh, are called up later. But yeah, Democritus is uh, amongst. Uh, I didn't get that uh, Eidolon stuff. That's great. 
Um, yeah, here it is. I found it. Oh, it's cool. on, on uh, um, Center for Hellenic Studies at Harvard, cool. as a matter of fact. Oh, sure. So, oh, it's one of my uh, classes. It's one of your classes? <laughs> one of my classes. Uh, oh, okay. Um, and I'm trying to find the reference here. Late Professor Chambers no doubt put that together because he's from Harvard. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Professor Rooms. Um, so the uh, Democritus, other than the stuff you're about to tell us, he's also the guy who came up with the atomic theory, right? The original right. atomic theory. Um, yep. When atoms meant uncuttable, right? So they can't be broken down more. He's considered the first scientist in some respects as well which is pretty hilarious because he, he ain't doing a lot of science, but he is doing mm -hmm. a lot of interesting philosophy. Okay, here's Democritus' stuff here. Uh, Democritus' theory of uh, idola. Idola are produced constantly. They spontaneously separate themselves from existing things. They move around. They make us see things. They have certain effects beyond what enters the eye. Um Idola is the word for souls of the dead in Homer. So that kind of uh, refers to uh, uh, one of your interpretations, mm -hmm. Jess. Um, Democritus declared that uh, these idola dive into the bodies through the pores, that they come up and produce appearances in sleep. So they become visible or, or audible and um, they, they can predict the future. Uh, what else does it say about it? Uh, do, 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 the last thing here. I don't know. I lost it. So uh, here, catch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, well, it brings up to mind um, the Poe connection again. Um, there's a poem exactly that I think inspires Lovecraft more than maybe anything else Poe wrote. Dreamland. Dream. Yeah. Right? Yep. By a root obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only, where an Eidolon named Night on a black throne reigns upright. Oh, I can do it w without even looking. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. I have reached these lands but newly, from an ultimate dim thule, from a wild weird climb that lieth sublime, out of space, out of time. Bottomless veils and boundless floods and chasms and caves and titan woods. There you go. With forms that no man can discover. From the tears that drip all over, mountains toppling evermore, into seas without a shore, seas that restlessly aspire, surging unto skies of fire, lakes that endlessly outspread, their lone waters, lone and dead, their still waters, still and chilly, with the snows of the lolling lily. By the lakes that thus outspread, their lone waters, lone and dead, their sad waters, sad and chilly, with the snows of the lolling lily. By the mountains near the river, murmuring lowly, murmuring ever, by the gray woods, by the swamp, where the toad and the newt encamp, by the dismal tarns and pools, where dwell the ghouls, by each spot the most unholy, in each nook most melancholy, there the traveler meets aghast, sheeted memories of the past, shrouded forms that start and sigh as they pass the wanderer by, white-robed forms of friends long given in agony to the earth and heaven. For the heart whose woes are legion, tis, uh, oh, tis a peaceful, soothing region. For the spirit that walks in shadow, tis, oh, tis an Eldorado. Another poem by Poe. Uh, but the traveler traveling through it may not, dare not openly view it. Never its mysteries are exposed to the weak human eye unclosed. Such a beautiful line there. 
so wills its king who hath forbid the uplifting of the fringed lid and thus the sad soul that passes through it beholds it but through dark and ah sorry and thus the soul the sad soul that here passes beholds it but through darkened glasses by a route obscure and lonely haunted by ill angels only where an eidolon named night on a black throne reigns upright i have wandered home but newly from this ultimate dim thule so uh, that frames this story very nicely um the democracy Poe did a better job of it. But <laughs> uh, oh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful poems he wrote, I think. Um, yeah. All, notice it also is missing the one thing that Lovecraft never puts in, which is the dead girlfriend. Oh, right. <laughs> uh-huh. There's yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. He he does have. You know, she did memories as- of the past, right? There's there's Asenath, so she's kind of like a semi <laughs> undead. You know. uh, that's kind of the dead transgendered boyfriend or something. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, it's fine. It's cool. If you're into it. Once, I had a girlfriend once. Try to nickname herself Asenath. Uh, <laughs> that's probably not a good girl to hang out with. I'm just saying. Well, it was it was fun. But the um uh I would I would add one more reference. Um, mm-hmm. but before I do that, let me just say thank you both because the uh. The Eidolon is uh, fantastic, fantastic to bring in, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and also the uh, uh, the Poe poem here is is perfect. I, I was just going to add a, a very strange uh, Blackwood story called "The Man Whom the Trees Loved." Oh, oh yes, yes. <clears throat> it's a really, <clears throat> really disturbing story. I mean, it sounds like a stupid thing. Yeah, uh, but Blackwood really pulls it off. Um, you know, it's a public domain. Um, I'm writing it down right now. So you get the you know the guy who just loves painting trees, and the trees respond to his affection and basically drive him away from his wife. Wow, um, awesome. it's a it's a creepy little <clears throat> little piece, but it's got that sense of uh, a forest <clears throat> and verdure being beautiful and alluring, and yet having this lurking terrible force. I mean, I you know, folks like Blackwood and Mock specialized in that, um, but this is this is one story that seems really focused on that. So uh, one one of the I think Brian you'll appreciate this I, this is one of the things I, I went through the story with my students because uh, I make them do my homework for me. <laughs> <laughs> very smart, very smart. It's very fun because then I I I'm trying to explain what's going on to them and it helps me understand what's going on, but also the vocab here is just incredible, right? You know, uh, wear on, coalesce, luxuriant. You know, these are all vocab words you don't get in in uh, I don't know regular comics they have to be pretty uh or you know regular story it's all i don't know teacups and tea cozies i don't know what regular people read about um in any case these are great vocab words and um so in in thinking of how they're all put together i I, and looking at these ancient pieces right this is a story from uh, basically a hundred years ago um i love reading old magazines, seeing how insane people were uh, in whatever period it was, you know, and in this period, um, this is what I explain, you know, so in, why are they, why are they so obsessed with this, you know, being mad at at the universe because they can't go to the stars? Um, It's because they haven't invented rocket ships yet, right? 
So in in 1905 to 19, I don't know, I'm making these dates up, but between 1905 and 1935, I would say uh, the well maybe 35 is a little bit early, late. Okay, so maybe 1895 to 1925. Basically, they 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 had another way of going to the stars, and it's just astral projection, right? It's wish fulfillment. Um, and it's tied into that Democritus uh, Eidolons, you know, leaving your body and all that. And it's right here. Listen to this. I recalled things I had learned. <laughs> I, ha- I had uh, recalled things I had learned, uh, things that I had dreamed, things I had imagined and yearned for in some other distant life. I love, he's got three things, doesn't tell us what any of those things are. Then the next line, I thought of the long nights when I had gazed up at the stars of heaven and cursed the gods that my free soul could not traverse the vast abysses which were inaccessible to my body. And then he conjures up the ancient blasphemies and terrible delvings in the, in, in the papyri of Democritus, right? And then on the next page, or a couple pages later, he gets his wish. He says... Yeah, he's not happy about it either. Uh, he's... Yeah, I, I, I think he's terribly upset and also really enjoying himself. <laughs> <laughs> Bits of sod continued to break away from the tiny tract which carried me, but I heeded not their loss, for I felt that I was not to die with the body or appearance of a body which I seemed to possess. So that's astral body, right? This also explains why this place doesn't have trees resembling our trees very well. That everything about me, even life and death, was illusory. That I had overleaped the bounds of mortality and corporeal entity, becoming a free and detached thing. It impressed me as almost certain. Right? So he got his wish. He got astral projection. And that's how he doesn't know what the hell's going on, because he found himself, I don't know, on another planet or, you know, some distant space version of Earth or something. And it's like, oh, yeah, I love how he planted the seed, and then he explains it. And this explains the whole story in a certain sense. You could see it as, like, yeah, it's just old science fiction, right? Before the rocket ships. He doesn't need a space helmet because he has an astral body. And that goes to Brian. Didn't we do a show on uh, a 1921 book by David Lindsay? Was it 1921? I think it was. Voyage to Arcturus. Yeah. Which is all astral projection uh, in the same way like this with weird forests and third eyes and yeah, that's a good comparison. That's a really good comparison because you have a whole sequence of uh, mysterious uh, forests, um, threatening ones too. It's um, ah, such a weird book. It I is love super it. weird, and and it seems like. I mean, even Jack London, he did a novel uh, that's an astral projection, right? It's got turned into the movie The Jacket, yeah. um, although that one has a lot less Vikings in it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot less uh, Japanese uh, invade- invasions, but um, it's certainly, uh, it, there's something, he's really touching on something that's, he, uh, what's cool is he's bringing together, it's almost like, you know, he's bringing hypnosis and the dreamlands all together. So uh, what, I, one of those people I read uh, writing a review of this, 
you know, they're going through all the books and, and they had, like you had, Mr. Jim Moon, they had a checklist, right? <laughs> which, which does this fall into? Um, and they, for, for the crawling chaos, they said, uh, it verges into the Cthulhu mythos, uh, but it's definitely in the dreamlands, right? And for this one, they said not in the Cthulhu mythos, but, uh, definitely in the dreamlands. And I'm like, yeah, well, um, it, it, it's also got Lovecraft country in it, right? So if you want to go through the checklist, um, you can kind of frame it in the wrong way i think and and not appreciate what how good this story is because yeah it it has an abrupt ending but that abrupt ending i think is foretold by the the huge frame right that says this is up for you to interpret almost i mean the narrator does almost nothing he just stands there Right? Yep. <laughs> he doesn't even like run away from anything. Like in 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 the crawling chaos, there's a tiger and he he gets afraid of the tiger and he goes deeper into the forest. Right here, the forest is uh, what it's a, got a malignant hatred for him. Um, it it's grotesquely huge, horrible, numerous giant uh, scaly bodied trees um, that are in conspiracies with something with uh, unthinkable things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> whatever those are and he just stands there and then the forest starts going into the sea and then instead of like you know i gotta start swimming he just the land breaks off and he's pushed towards this green meadow floating out in the sea and it's up to us to do all the work he doesn't yeah, it's, do anything. it's typical typical lovecraft in a way he's not you know there's there's the unthinkable things the un, indescribable things and uh, he, he is uh, generally passive and even his uh, main characters i i think mm-hmm. are are generally passive because this horrible thing existence is 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 just uh, is hitting them, you know, that, that, that's what, I mean, he's, he's passive and, uh, and life itself, existence itself, consciousness, whatever is, uh, is what attacks him. It's all that theme of the, the, the hopeless, uh, uncaring universe. I, I think, uh, mm-hmm. even in the crawling chaos with that, uh, that reference to tiger, that always made me think of the, the William Blake Absolutely. poem, which was, uh, uh, just it, it's just a perfectly succinct statement of of the whole uh, Lovecraft cosmology, almost. You know, it's funny because I, I, in listening to that story again, I totally agree. It, it is a reference to William Blake, but what's funny is the character doesn't think it is. <laughs> he thinks it's a reference <laughs> to Rudyard Kipling, and right. so he says, "Ah, oh, I, I thought of it. I thought it must be a tiger." A tiger in the forest of the night, huh? That must be a reference to Rudyard Kipling. And so, he oh, decides, that's right, that's right. He decides Oops. to run back to the house on the crumbling peninsula, right? The uh, peninsula that's rapidly becoming less and less of an isthmus and soon to be an island, right? And he can't because the, you know, it's all colla- everything. The world around him is collapsing. I love that story because it, it's it's literally a description of somebody's body sort of decaying. And and they're they're retreating inland, right, into themselves, and and then you know some alien says, "Hey, let's go off to another planet." And he's like, "Yeah, that's cool," <laughs> because uh, this place, this place full of life, ain't good. Let's go out to the. 
uh, so good. I love that. And here, it, it's the exact same sort of situation. I think Virginia Jackson must have been a really prodigious dreamer herself because um, this is uh, it is so dreamlike, but it's also really nice. I mean, I, I it's very difficult for me to get this level of detail of dream out on a piece of paper or a tweet or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, it, it's just... It's very hard to hold on to all those details and get them down as fast as you can. But he's managed to turn it into a, a, like a a thing that actually does work as a story, I think, pretty well. This completely alien place that could only le- live in someone's dreams. Uh, the, I've got tons of notes here. Um, why, why are the trees scaly? And the, notice that the, their trunks are green, too. So one of the theories I proposed to my students was that he had become an ant and that those were like, this is a field of broccoli, (laughs) (laughs) a field of broccoli, you know, with green trunks and, and I wonder, wonder why no one ever thought of that before. I always took it just down to the, the, the type of trees they were. And the fact that described as scaly, um, kind of refers to, you know, the, like a lot, a lot of like trees in a lot of British forests that are covered in uh, like you know lichens and mm. fungi and you know they have this uh, they do look like they're sort of like you know almost got lizard skin with strictly with a lot of the grey lichens that have frilly edges. Mm. You know? mm. But they're, they're also oh, it could swaying. just be a point of alienness though as well. Though. They're they're definitely they're they're definitely swaying right like they're moving. So one if I was going to do this as a you know a film I would do probably stop motion animation. Um, and, uh, you know, like claymation or something like that. And I would definitely do something with, um, to make it appear as if time was moving more quickly than, uh, you know, like in fast forward or something, because one of the things we always think is, you know, uh, trees don't move, but they really do. They're just incredibly slow at it. Right. And if you look (laughs) at some plants in your yard and you watch them every day, they, they get taller, right. And they grow in directions and they fight each other for space and, and light and all that stuff. So uh, whatever's going on in this strange alien, alienage full planet, um, is pretty, is pretty cool. But, uh, I, I want to point to a whole bunch of specific things I pointed to with my students. So one of the ones is the word Scythian lands, right? So the Scythians were the Greek people's way of describing everybody, I don't know, to the top right of uh, the Black Sea. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll just read this section here. Then it was, Then it was that I heard at a distance, immeasurable, the sound of falling water. Not that any trivial cascade such as I had known, but that which might be heard in the far Scythian lands if all the Mediterranean were poured down an unfathomable abyss. So you take the entire Mediterranean and start pouring it down. That's a pretty big... um, This planet is basically being destroyed, right? Or if it is a planet. Um, The sea sea, uh, is at war with the land. Um, He says that the sea... Uh, was being colonized by the trees, but in the end, when he looks back, the trees have destroyed the land. The trees conspiring with the clouds have defeated the trees. Uh, uh, sorry, the sea with the clouds have defeated the 
trees uh, with the things of the air, which, I don't know, what are they, uh, night gaunts or something? <laughs> 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 uh, they, they, they lost the war. So uh, if we're doing interpretation, to me that's like, um, yeah, life is terrible, horrible. You know, if you want to blame if you want to blame God for something, God is life. God is existence uh, in the form of DNA replicating, right? And it's fucking horrible. It fills you with diseases and makes you come alive and know that you're going to die. And, oh, that's horrible. And then the enemy of life is non-life, which is things like water, right? And air and rock. And it ultimately will defeat life, which is pretty nihilistic if you think about it um, yeah but that's that's one of the things uh, in the end of it he was uh he was hoping for you know in, yeah in, so i'm gonna live forever in, and i'm not going to get the uh the the boon of death and uh, oblivion that uh that i so wanted or, or whatever it was yeah he's gonna live in stella stethelos where young men are infinitely old which, um, but uh, just the word the Scythian lands. Well, it, that's an or the Scythians, right? That's also the word S C Y T H E, scythe, right? The hmm. end of life, which is really nice. Um, it's also the Scythians who will the earliest recall it hashish smokers. Oh, huh? <laughs> I'll throw that in there. Yeah, well, <laughs> that fits too. Um, speaking of uh, hashish, for in the sky dark vaporous forms hovered fantastically. <laughs> The smoke rings of the hash, hashish smokers. <laughs> Brooding over the trees and seeming to answer the challenge of the waving green branches. Um, so there's something living in, in, the, uh, in the forest, but there's also something living on the, in the green meadow, which he never actually gets to, right? So um, I've highlighted this section. I want you to tell me what it means. Um, while the words were utterly indistinguishable, this is the words of the song of the things that are resembling himself, I guess, in some way, human-ish, that are on the green meadow. He says, the chant, while the words that were utterly indistinguishable, the chant awakened in me a particular train of associations. I guess kind of like this story. And I was reminded of some vaguely disquieting lines I had once translated out of an Egyptian book, while in turn which in turn were taken from a papyrus of ancient Meroe. Is that how you're... I, it's hard to pronounce. Meroe is the capital of Kush, uh, which is in Sudan, or was yep. in Sudan. Um, and that's where they have those really nice steep pyramids, right? Which is, again, land of the dead sort of thing, right? Though my brain ran the lines, uh, ran lines that I fear to repeat, lines retelling of very antique things and forms of life in the days while when our earth was exceedingly young, of things which thought and moved and were alive, yet which gods and men would not consider alive. It was a, I love this line, it was a strange book. <laughs> uh, is this a prototype? Is like this the Egyptian Book of the Dead uh, prototype for the Necronomicon just not called out? What, what's going on here? Who are those people on the Green Meadow, or the chanters on the Green Meadow? Well, I think as it's uh, we've got a Professor Chambers mentioned. Yep. This might be drawing on a uh, uh, the uh, king in Liello instead. Mm. And... Nice. Because I mean that you know the king in yellow is a 
It's such a strange play set on an alien world. Right. Jeez, I never made that connection. Nice. Hmm. Yeah, that's something I just noticed when I was rereading it this morning. I thought, hang on, Professor Chambers. and I mean, I've just been reading Alan Moore's uh, Providence, which is just coming out in nice collected yeah. hardback editions. Oh, and, it is? Uh, it is? Oh, oh. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah. The first, first two, first two are out. now in hardback. So, yep. Yeah. Uh, but in, you know, in four that, parts. Yeah. But in that, it's kind of, you know, it more sort of calls out that Lovecraft's Necronomicon is inspired by Chambers and this idea of a mythical book that can drive men mad and... And it, I can't help thinking perhaps this here is a it, it's a test out of that idea. And it's also a kind of an idea I think he would use later in Shadow Out of Time that you have this strange narrative written on a strange book that came from some unimaginable and unknown other alien age. Mm. Right. So, yeah, in, one, one of the things that's a bit mysterious about about astral projection, not, not that it's a real thing, but uh, certainly... It's it's a very persistent meme. This is what I'm saying. You know, the like um, uh, people get really upset about you know whatever racism is they think is happening or whatever thing that happening in the news today. It's just hilarious because uh, in a hundred years I'm going to be looking. Well, maybe not me. Somebody's going to be looking back at the magazines uh, or wh- whatever the podcast equivalent of the time is now, and. They're going to be laughing. Look at these crazy people. They were, you know, they're so obsessed with the yellow peril or whatever, whatever crazy um, obsession that really is not what they should be should have been worried about. Um, one of the things about astral projection is it, it isn't just for space; it's also for time, right? So you've got mm-hmm. um, in in the what's the Jack London novel called the Star Rover, right? Right. Um, he doesn't. Mo- he mostly doesn't go out of the Earth. He just goes around the world, right? He doesn't go to the stars. It's kind of misnamed in a certain sense. Um, and that's semi-based on a real guy, right, in that particular novel. But the whole thing is is, is if you can project your body outside of – or yourself outside of your body and go, go places no man has been, um, maybe that's what you do every night in your sleep. That's cool. Um, this this connection uh, explains a hell of a lot about what's going on, um, but it what, what's so cool is that you know unlike the other stories we've read, the Dreamland stories like um, when King Kuranis uh, walks off the edge of the of the uh, uh, I don't know Dover cliffs or whatever, um, he he's killed himself in uh, our world. And, yeah, yeah, he gets to reign forever in uh, Celepheus or whatever. On the other hand, um, what proof do we have of that? Here, the proof is fucking meteorite came down from the sky <laughs> with a book with in a it. With a book in it! <laughs> I mean, is there anything more ridiculous? Like, uh, but, on the other hand, it, it did take almost 2,000 years to reach the Earth. From where yeah, and and it was it, it was and it was written in classical Greek, uh, of the uh, most pure typical kind. of the typical yeah, of the time period of three hundred BC. Right. <laughs> cursive. Cursive. I don't think Greek had cursive at that time. Uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty nice cursive. Yeah, I might it was, on, it was slate uh, chalk and slate, which apparently is in, uh, unable to be destroyed unless it's convenient for the. Uh, for the professor. For the, for the professor to get out the chalk eraser. Right. 
Um, so uh, uh, to me, I'm just not 100% sure of what the what the people on the and, – and I mean that's what the name of the story is too. What do the people on the uh, Green Meadow represent? Is that like the lure of life that isn't horror? Is, are, is it like the siren call of um, – no, Lovecraft's not well known for his um, his love of his fellow humans, but he did actually like quite a few people, right? It's not well known as, you know, the most social uh, guy to hang out with at the at the local uh, dance hall. But he did like some people. And it's like, yeah, I do, I, if you ask me to go to a party, I'm like, no, thank you very much. I do not want to go. <laughs> um, on the other hand, um, there are some parties I probably wouldn't mind going to. It's just, you know, if you say most people say party, it's not what I'm thinking of. Right. So uh, is that the siren, you know, is it the siren call of of come to us with life and don't do this suicide thing going off the cliff? He could have jumped off. The narrator could have jumped off the uh, the uh, bit of land that he's floating on and swam yeah, I, over. I, I, I didn't read that part really closely, but uh, the impression I got from it was uh, that that those uh, people that were there in mm -hmm. the green meadow, mm -hmm. uh, those shadowy figures were um, ultimately unidentified, but they were that which is really real. And not that we know what that is. We don't know what that is. But uh, all we know is that uh, uh, once again, reverting to his main theme. You know, uh, uh, existence is futile and and horrible, and oblivion is to be preferred. And now, uh, at the end, he's just sketching where uh, his his where he's uh, experienced what experiencing whatever actual reality is or may be. But he doesn't actually come out and identify it. So, I mean, that's that's the impression I got. Mm. Mr. Jim Moon, what do you think? So, I'm I'm kind of uh, why is the story called the Green Meadow? As much as it's, you know, it could have been called uh, the the weird forest, right? The scary trees. The scary trees. <laughs> oh, those scary, spooky trees, kids. Huh? <laughs> the big waterfall. <laughs> I called it a whole bunch of things. Well, let me read this section, and then I want you to give me your best guess. Um, my eyes could now discern several things amidst the omnipresent verdure. Again, we get uh, this place is green, just like the menacing green from before, right? That he was fleeing somehow. Rocks covered with bright green moss, shrubs of considerable height, and less definable shapes of great magnitude, which seemed to move or vibrate among, amidst the shrubbery in, in a peculiar way. The chanting, whose authors I was so anxious to glimpse, seemed loudest at the points where these shapes were most numerous and most vigorously in motion. The, the, the sense of vibration, which we actually have throughout here, uh, right from the beginning of the story, there's things shaking and vibrating and uh, oscillating, right? Um, it's like, wake up, buddy, your dream, you're having a nightmare. There's something weird going, what, what are these, the, they're not menacing, right? Whereas the other ones were. What does this mean? I don't know, for me, personally, I do have a problem with this because he uses the word shrubbery. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> thanks to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I'm expecting oh, um, no. and three-headed knight to pop out. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, yeah, shrubbery. 
maybe it's uh, maybe it's just you gentlemen, but uh, I was reminded of the great William Hope Hodgson story, uh, Voice in the Night. Voice in the Night? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. One yes. of the ships covered with fungus. Mm-hmm. And uh, it reminded me of that, that, that uh, ill-defined uh, right. shapes and blobs with ominous intent. There's actually two stories with the, with that sort of um, horrible fungus covering. Uh, one is is the voice in the night, and then there's another one. Um, I think it's called the der- yeah, it's the derelict, where they right. find I, I, it might be in the middle of the night or not, but they find a ship completely covered over with this growth. And of course, it's kind of the opposite kind of growth as we see here. It's a fungus, right? Um, and a fungus is uh, it's interesting because fungus is is eating something that was it's 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 a eater of the dead right um and that's pretty gross um but here it's the it's the green right it's the some most neutral beautiful kind of life we like you know oh beautiful forest too beautiful garden and here it's just regular life that's um not you know the dead eating ghoulish form of life that is fungus here it's the it's the monstrous uh, forest of, of green, so green that even the trunks are green. Here even the rocks are covered in green, right? It's almost like they they represent uh, with the forward and backward nature of how old things are and how or how far in the future they are. It's almost like life is the is of not an individual but of the perpetuation is the horror. Right. If you yep. if if at some days if you gave uh, uh, if anybody can become president, right? Lovecraft could become president. <laughs> if he could become president, and he had the option to nuke the whole planet. You get the sense that he said we'd be better off. <laughs> Maybe some days just getting rid of all the DNA replication because it's horrible. Give me a clean planet like Mars. Give me a nice Mercury <laughs> bathed in the solar rays. <laughs> That's what I'm sensing out of it. And yeah, that, uh, I think one thing he was doing throughout is, uh, you just made me think of uh, of this, is he's taking things that we would normally associate as like, uh, you know, oh boy, let's, let, let's take a nice Sunday springtime mm. afternoon walk in the woods where yeah. it's all green, but, but it's all green. You know why it's green? Because the trees are scaly. And let's just walk out and <laughs> Let's 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 walk out into into the beautiful uh, verdure, the outdoor. Oh, there's just so much green. Green is my favorite color because it's it, it's uh, you know it's it's fungus. <laughs> you know, he's just he's taking things like he's like wake up people. What what you normally see as as beautiful, you know, if you just look beneath the skin, it's yeah, it's. It's horrible. It's that horrible life stuff again. It's that mm-hmm. oh, it's, it's existence, which everybody knows sucks. You know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what's so funny is right uh, in reading that that other Lovecraft uh, the uh, in in the mountains of madness. That, that's the name of it. Not at the mountains of madness, but in the mountains of madness by W. Scott Poole. Um, the fact that I, I hadn't realized that or known that Lovecraft had been sort of committed to killing himself at least one point in his life. Um, and the only thing that held him back, right? Oh, I don't know enough about geology. <laughs> I don't, I, no, there's a lot of interesting books still to read. And, of course, that's exactly what's going on here in this hilarious story of this guy who <laughs> he finds himself 
on another planet, uh, astrally projected or some dream space. Um, and he's describing the horrors that lurk within the forest and how horrible it is in infinite space and time. Oh, it's so horrible. And, oh, that was a really strange book. <laughs> it just <laughs> thinks about that strange book he read. <laughs> and, um, and <laughs> I, I love Mr. Lovecraft. He's so funny. I mean, I, I the other thing is, is this is a joke, isn't it? Ultimately, he's framing it as a joke. Um, I, I don't know. I didn't get that sense. I mean, there, he might have some. There might be some tongue-in-cheek thing about it, but uh, uh, it's definitely is just, is just you know falling along his his just his normal his normal path. It's you know it's his it's his normal message. But I, I I don't think you can sit, you know walk away from it saying oh it's deadly serious just because he sets it up as a hoax and then he he says uh, anybody who can figure this out I uh, uh, we've we've got to figure it out it's the most important scientific discovery in the history of mankind that a uh, meteorite had a book in it <laughs> <laughs> it's like you it, it take the color out of space right. <laughs> Um, instead of the meteorite spreading an infection over the world, um, instead it, it it has a book in it. <laughs> what else well, it, would it have in it? It's it's the uh, it it's the message that we've all been waiting for from the uh, from the great beyond. You know, it's it's the universe speaking to us somehow, telling us what uh, what is real. Maybe, uh, maybe that's how Joseph Smith found his books. They came out of a meteorite. <laughs> Yeah. See, they were they were made of the same stuff, right? <laughs> like into in gold leaves, right? Wasn't it? Oh yeah, his That's his true, his, yes. his, yeah. his was gold. Yeah, yeah. And nobody else could look at it. He had to put it in the bottom of a hat, look through, look at it through a special stone. That yeah, <laughs> he takes <laughs> he takes that sort of the hoax religion that uh, I think uh, one of the Southport boys made a really good joke out of and. Everybody joked along with, and yet a lot of people appreciate the religion for not, uh, you know, uh, being very mean, except when it is mean, which a lot of them are. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, they're nice people to hang out with Mormons. Yeah, sure, their religion's insane, but they're, they're nice folks, <laughs> right? Yeah, not hard drinkers or smokers, and, you know, sure, they don't like coffee, but they do like ice cream. And, yeah, and as I understand it, I don't have personal experience with it, but I think they are supposedly have some... Like really cool underwear or something, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes. What did Mark Twain say about reading the Book of Mormon? He said it was a uh, chloroform in print. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. It, it, they they're nice folks. I, I mean, they're, their so, religion's uh, a joke, but it's it's a. Uh, before we go completely sideways, I just wanted to ask uh, one of you on Twitter mentioned the Fiddler's Green myth, right? Uh, do we want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so Fiddler's Green is is uh, uh, I, I think it's a nice little connection just because we've got the sea and then we've got the green. Um, uh, I think you pointed to the Sandman. Was that was an image from the Sandman that you retweeted? Or tweeted um, uh, I, I referenced it. Have you have you all read that? Yeah, I read it years ago. I, I'd forgotten about it, but. Um, in thinking a, about me the Green Meadow, I, I did think of Fiddler's Green. Uh, there's a character who is uh, Fiddler's Green. Oh. Um, 
and we don't realize that for a couple of volumes. Neat. Yeah. It's been a long time since I read Sandman. Well, okay, this is an unpopular thing to say, but um, I think Sandman is better than anything Gaiman has written since. Um, uh, probably I, it's right. Really, um, I, it's hard I, I don't think the first volume holds up very well at all. Uh, it's very difficult to get people to read it. Um, but yeah. I think subsequently it becomes amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So, I mean, this feels like a, the story here, it feels like a kind of um, version of Fiddler's Green. You know, you have that ideal, beautiful, verdant spot um, that's surrounded by water that appeals to sailors and travelers. Um, but because this is Lovecraft, it turns to the dark. Um, mm. It's ultimately frightening and, and disturbing. Yeah, it's it's like um, I was I've been reading a lot of comics lately. As is Mr. Jim Moon, I noticed um, yes. <laughs> old comics. Um, and every time every time we find a mermaid, right? Which is sort of the so if Fiddler's Green is the uh, heaven for sailors, mermaids are the you know angels for sailors, right? right. Um, and every time they find a mermaid in one of these old DC or Marvel comics, uh, horror comics, they're always like monsters, like they're eating. <laughs> they're eating uh there's one i tweeted out yesterday is like this mermaid discovers meat oh it's so good <laughs> <laughs> frightening oh man well, isn't uh, isn't there some uh something in greek mythology uh about mermaids lamia or something oh sure uh, yeah sirens yeah yep. yeah yep. sirens totally i mean that's that's what i was pointing to before but um Fiddler's Green is it's it's like uh, the Valhalla for sailors, right? It's the place of uh, eternal grog drinking and uh, I don't know sea shantying. Uh, sort of more or less a land of perpetual mirth. Right. Uh, yeah. It's quite very much kind of it seems to be like every appears in the 19th century and it turns up in uh, several novels and an awful lot of folk songs as well. Um. Which is probably not surprising, as um, I did see a chart yesterday about uh, well, <laughs> common ways of dying in folk songs, and uh, I think you know well over forty-five is drowning, <laughs> thanks to the power <laughs> of the sea shanty. Uh, it's mentioned in uh, in Friday and the Cat Who Walks Through Walls uh, by Heinlein as an extra solar colony, um, and uh, Billy Budd um, by Melville. He calls it the quote providentially sent apart for dance houses, doxies, and tapsters. I don't know what a tapster <laughs> is, but I, is that a guy who pulls the the beer tap? Or, uh, I think so. I yeah. think so. Dance houses, doxies, and tapsters. Wow. What are doxies? Those are those are uh, dance hall girls, I think. Uh, uh, well, more ladies of negotiable affection. Same difference, Flute. I believe. <laughs> right? Wow. Uh, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the five cents a dance thing, it was basically a legitimate way of. Am I wrong? Is Am I wrong about this? Isn't that. It was like a way of getting around the prostitution laws, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, That's at least. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not presented it's that way in the, films. You just buy them bottles of champagne now. That's the scam. Yeah, I mean, uh, but also, I mean, uh, part of the real story too. Also, is you know, it's not pr it's not appropriate for women to seek sex at uh, this era, but 
you know, they're human beings who want sex too. Um, so this is a way of, you know, uh, we're going for dance, right? It's not. Or it just might have been. It might have been the, uh, you know, an earlier version of Match.com. <laughs> it is absolutely right. Yeah, we really did go off the rails there, didn't we? Nicely done. <laughs> right off the rails and into the sea and off the cliff. And, well, maybe we're, maybe off the hook as well. Um, off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.